Welcome back to the Cato Institute's sixth annual summit on financial regulation. Today, we're talking about the evolution of banking. I'm Jennifer Schulte, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Financial and Monetary Alternatives. We just finished a lively panel discussion about increasing competition in banking, featuring Maria Early, Eric Goldberg, and Ron Shevlin. Earlier, we heard from Brian Brooks, the acting comptroller of the currency. Perhaps not surprisingly, a thread throughout today's conversation has been about the different roles between federal and state regulators. We've heard from a federal regulator, we've heard from practitioners, and now it's time to hear from a state regulator. We're on to the last part of our program today, a fireside chat with Linda Lacewell, the superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services. She'll be speaking on the role of state regulators. We're honored to have her with us today. Linda Lacewell has been superintendent of the New York State Department of Financial Services since 2019. New York State Department of Financial Services supervises the activities of nearly 1,500 banking and other financial institutions and more than 1,800 insurance companies. Before leading the department, she served as chief of staff and counselor to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Ms. Lacewell spent nine years as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York, including two years on the Enron Task Force, and received the Henry L. Stimson Medal and the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Service. We're, as I said, we're very honored to have her with us today. She'll be joined by moderator Diego Zuluaga, my colleague and Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Before I turn the mic over to Diego, just a reminder, you can submit questions for Ms. Lacewell today on the event site or on social media using hashtag CatoFinRed. FinReg. Diego? Thank you, Jennifer um, and Superintendent. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. There's been a lot of conversation today, as Jennifer was pointing out, about the issue of regulatory federalism, which is a principle, a longstanding principle of, of American financial regulation and other regulation. And that has evolved over time. We heard a view from Comptroller Brooks in the morning. We, had, we heard several different views in the course of the panel, but I would be very keen to know what your own uh, view of the role of regulatory federalism in 2020 is. Thank you, uh, Diego, and thank you also to the Cato Institute for the invitation. This is a very important discussion and that's a great way to start. Uh, federalism is the founding of our nation, as we know. I'm not going to you know, give a history lesson, but the federal state, the dual banking system uh, as relevant here is critical and each has a role to play. The federal government uh, takes care of monetary policy, the general safety and soundness, of the markets and our financial system and ensuring that our monetary systems are working um, and dealing typically at a very high level. And that's very important as we saw with the 2008 financial crisis and with our current financial crisis. And obviously we have a national banking system uh, which is critically important as sort of an analog or, or a segue from that. Uh, but the, the system of federalism presupposes that the states have a very vital role and that in fact, we have a limited federal government. Uh, that's what um, the nation was founded on. And when the system is working correctly, 
then that is for the good of the people as a whole. Because we need uh, safety and soundness across the board. Otherwise, there are no products and services for people to enjoy and have access to in their lives. But the states are the people. And the people are the consumers. And at my agency, DFS, we put the individual, the family, the small business at the center of everything we do because everything that we do and everything that our licensed entities do affect real people in their lives. And beyond that, I feel very strongly that government is in trust to the people. We don't sort of automatically have these powers, any of us, whether state or federal. It is a system of public trust. Our powers are delegated to us by the people, whether we are elected or whether we serve in office as an appointment or even whether you're an employee, even at a high level or at a low level. So the question is, if the people entrusted us with these powers, what do the people want us to do? What do the people need us to do? And I will be coming back to that, I think, uh, in all likelihood throughout our remarks. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, lest the audience from previous sessions get the impression that federalism is not something libertarians regard as important. It's crucially important in terms of, as you say, constraining the power of a single government, ensuring there is competition between the states for the benefit of consumers, but also that consumers, the people, can move uh, if they don't like the regime that they live under in, in particular cases. Um, the only concern that arises with the, with states having the power to regulate matters is that sometimes that can be used as a way to constrain competition or to prevent entry from other jurisdictions. And there are also concerns about rising compliance costs for new providers to try and provide services nationwide. Of course, New York is a hub for financial services. It has been basically since the founding of the nation uh, and it plays a very important role in that. But I'm just curious as to how you would square the concern about preserving federalism and competition between the states, beneficial competition, with the issue of having as much entry as possible and the ability for states to work with each other. How, how does that happen now? So again, great question. It is very important to have a balance. I like to say we regulate our entities only as much as needed and not a drop more. And we do recognize that for any kind of business, including financial institutions, there are compliance costs. We are very active in the National State Banking Organization, the CSBS. I'm now an at-large member of the board. And it is a big focus of CSBS to figure out how states can work together and can we do uh, you know, joint licensing, joint supervision. And there's a lot of energy in that right now. Um, consumers want these products, but they also want consumer protection. And for any financial institution, whether you're a state or federal regulator, it's important to make sure that uh, the consumer is being protected, that the financial product or service is not subject to um, cybersecurity risks, money laundering, uh, OFAC violations. Nobody wants their business you know, used for those purposes. And also to protect the owner and operator of the business to make sure that uh, their products are not being stolen, right? Um, so the really critical thing, and I have learned this very well, is the balance. Look, I started off as a federal prosecutor, then I worked in the state AG's office, then I worked for the governor, and these are all very disparate roles. So I feel very good now in this role that I understand we have to foster industry, 
It's critically important to foster innovation, especially now to build back better. And it is possible to do these things at the same time as consumer protection and making sure these other risks that I've identified and others uh, are met. So we need to continue to work together, the states together, the states with the federal regulators, listening to all the stakeholders, the consumers. It is an unusual thing that for the New York Department of Financial Services, part of our mission as actually articulated in the statute, if you can believe it, is economic development. Uh, and that's really a little bit unusual for a financial regulator. So we have that additional layer as well right now, given that the uh, public uh, health pandemic has unfortunately led to the economic development and jobs crisis that we have, the economic, economic crisis that we have, and these things are connected. So we got to build back better on the public health side. We've got to build back better on the economic side and on the job side. And this means we've got to put innovation squarely at what we do because the old ways we know, they don't work anymore. Number one, we were not prepared. Number two, the federal government was not here for us. We're talking about federalism. The states have had to do it on their own. See Andrew Cuomo who really led the nation when the federal government really should have been doing that job. And it was the public health pandemic that led to the jobs crisis. People didn't get fired on the merits. They lost their jobs because we had shut down the nation. And so I think that it requires some sophistication and some nuance and some balance. And it requires dialogue, which is why I welcome events such as this, because we need to be talking with each other. We gotta do public-private partnerships. We've gotta nurture innovation. That's what we're doing at DFS with a number of initiatives where we've reached out and said to innovators, we need ideas on telehealth and other parts of public health. We need it for household finance. We need it for small business, right? Which is the backbone of the economy. Absolutely. And we'll talk about the financial regulatory implications of the COVID pandemic in a moment, but just to get specific on the question of federalism and the role of state regulators, um, do you see it as a viable possibility that states could work together to present an alternative to this federal payments charter that Brian Brooks was talking about. I know there's been talk about having uniform laws on payments to try and simplify money transmitter regulations at the state level without resorting to federal preemption. But do you think that is a feasible prospect in, in coming years? And what's the New York DFS's stance precisely on that? I do think it's feasible because I've spoken with my counterparts from other states, especially in the framework of CSBS, and I know John Ryan and Margaret Liu and others at CSBS are very focused on finding ways for states to work together. Um, and once in a while, the impediment is sort of certain states like New York can be very high standard, and we're proud of that, the degree to which um, we protect both consumers and business operators. And so, plus our cybersecurity regulations are the standard for the nation. Um, including the FTC and the National Insurance Association. And so it, I do still think though that it is possible to sort of set a level where you know, all interested states are cooperating as a whole and then maybe New York separately looks at cybersecurity or maybe at some point we take care of the cybersecurity piece for other states. There are all kinds of interesting and innovative ideas happening. And by the way, we have to do it because as innovation is really mushrooming, uh, right? I mean, look, 
um, up to 40% of personal lending is now done online, whereas you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was 10%. So the innovators, as opposed to your sort of standard chartered banks, whether they're federal or state, are, and the pace of change, right, is so dramatic, uh, and also given the need to build back better, we have got to lean in more into making it workable, right? It's, um, you know, we want uh, responsible innovation and we both have to do our part. And by the way, that includes regulators. I believe very strongly, we have to innovate ourselves internally. We have to move to a system of, you know, perpetual oversight. You don't have to like show up in somebody's offices every X period of time and rifle through file cabinets, right? I mean, we have to innovate as well, and we are putting a lot of energy into that. So I do think it's possible. And by the way, we have to do it because right now there is no federal authority for any kind of chartering in tech companies, whether they're payment or lending that are not depositories. And there's a reason for that, which is called the National Bank Act, which at the time, as you know, was controversial itself, um, but it is limited. We have limited federal government, we have limited federal oversight, and the states have a very vital role and have always had so, right? The FDR say the states are the laboratories of democracy. We're also the laboratories of finance and innovation. And that's especially true in New York. And we will continue to balance all of these interests and stay in an open dialogue with all of our stakeholders to make sure that we improve the system for everyone and not just for some. And I know we'll probably be talking about that as well but financial inclusion questions are critically important as well as consumer protection. And I believe those are best handled by the states as well. Okay, so let's talk about financial inclusion because New York, as you were saying, is not only a microcosm of financial innovation in America and India focus point, it's also a microcosm of some of the financial inclusion issues that America faces because it's a financial services hub, but it also has a significant percentage, I think about the national average of unbanked population. I think partly that has to do with the fact that minorities who tend to be uh, more, more likely to be under, underbanked or unbanked. You have a presence of that, so the demographics play, play a role. You have a lot of new immigrants who come to become entrepreneurs and, and various other things. All those things play a role. But what do you think needs to be done in the, in the way of authorizing new provision of financial services by new firms to attract those people who currently don't use banks uh, to, to use more financial services so that they can be more included, build a credit score and so forth, and, and hopefully, you know, we have access to as wide a variety of financial products as everybody else, and what can be done at the state level to that effect? Okay, so yes, New York is very diverse uh, for all the reasons that you stated, but the country is becoming more diverse as well. That scares some people. We embrace diversity and innovation, and the studies now show if you want to be creative and innovative, be diverse at your board level, at your staff level, because if everybody around the table looks just like you, you're all just talking to yourselves and you need different perspectives, whether that's you know, racial or ethnic or country of origin diversity or LGBTQ or parts of the country or paths that people took. You need that diversity across the board. It's people used to say, well, you should help people of color uh, because you know you should be a good person and a nice person. No, if you wanna succeed, you should embrace diversity. And for this country, we need to embrace diversity. So, um, you know, at DFS, we are doing so. We're creating a statewide office of financial inclusion and empowerment at DFS. 
But all you have to really do is look at where we are, right? We talk about the pandemic. We really, we have three crises. We have the public health crisis, we have the economic and jobs crisis, and we have the racial justice crisis. I've already talked about how the first and second crises are, are related. The racial, the cry for racial justice goes back a hundred years to the original sin. And it can't be ignored. It can't be ignored. People are protesting about treatment by the police, but it is a much broader issue than that. Um, we have seen that uh, people who are black start life with a financial disadvantage. Black people are 10 to 13% of the wealth. They're only two, two and a half percent, I'm sorry, of the population. They're only two, two and a half percent of the wealth. And that hasn't changed in 60 years. So uh, getting people into the system actually strengthens the system for everyone. Government has a role. The state government has a role. The federal government has a role. We've got to do financial inclusion, financial education. We've got to empower people. And we have to stop allowing the financial creditors to ply their wares on people who are desperate for some kind of access to financial products and services. And some of the actions that have been taken at the federal level are truly destructive. We need to be helping people to build wealth and not opening the door wide open for the creditors to come in and strip whatever is left. That doesn't help any of us. Um, the stronger that each one of us is, the stronger the whole. Mario Cuomo, the family of New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo, when one is lifted, all are lifted. And the same is true in the reverse. And, and this is not just talk, it's what all the studies now coming out of academia and foundations and elsewhere are saying. So I think, I feel good about the fact that we put people at the center. We want everyone to be included. Now, what I would say is we need innovators to do the same. We do foster innovation. We're agnostic, we don't pick the winners and losers, but we will focus more energy on those who are gonna help real people with real problems, rather than creating some other shiny object for wealth management by the upper 1% or less. You know, innovators, if the pandemic has showed us anything, it's that we are all connected. We are all connected, not just in New York, not just in the country, but globally. So why don't we act like it? And why don't we help everyone, the public uh, health is not controlled, it affects all of us, rich or poor. Uh, COVID is agnostic to your wealth, uh, not so agnostic to um, uh, your race, right? Because unfortunately, people of color, they've had less access to health, they have um, more comorbidities, they're dramatically more affected. Uh, but in any event, innovators, Everyone has a chance to serve. I believe in public service. You don't actually have to work for government to serve. What are you doing to help people? And I say to innovators, what is your product or service or benefit that is going to have an impact on people's lives? And right now, whether it's public health or it's inclusion or it's helping people with their household finances, and those are the kind of initiatives that we're going to be putting our energy uh, into. And we have some initiatives on this where we will help nurture people who have those goals in mind. We will give you more of our time and attention because that helps people. Have the economic effects and specifically the, the financial ramifications of the pandemic, have they highlighted for you areas where you didn't necessarily, they weren't part of your priority agenda of things, be they 
digital accounts or mobile banking or money transmission or access to payments, any areas that have been highlighted where you can have some policy change to help access to precisely those groups you described? Yes, well, so I sort of view that uh, as a two-part question or at least a two-part answer. You know, one is, you know, during the pandemic, um, because people were not working, they could not pay their bills. Um, we work with industry to defer premiums, uh, whether it's health insurance or life insurance or any kind of property insurance. Um, we worked with industry to waive co-pays, um, to defer mortgage payments, to defer student loan payments that were within our authority. And it was vitally important to do that because Again, the people don't have money, they can't pay, the whole system's gonna collapse. And the federal government providing some help to people was critically important as well. And it is an absolute tragedy that the Congress can't see their way to extend that because of the politics. Again, you're supposed to be there to serve people. What are you doing to help people who are suffering through no fault of their own? And some might say through the fault of the federal government who did not manage this global pandemic or even warn about it. So um, uh, second part of your question, can you restate a little bit for me? It was the, any specific areas of policy change that- the Oh, yes. yes, thank you. Raised for you. The need to get money to people quickly, right? The federal government, and this is, the federal government stepped up with payments, but it was such an ordeal to figure out how to get money to people. The states, including New York, with the unemployment system. How do you get these benefits out to people? The systems were overwhelmed. And this, I think, is a very vital area where innovators ought to work with government, state and federal, because we can't do anything about what happens, but we need to be ready if this kind of thing happens again. And you know, we are exploring in New York ways that the state would be able to get money instantaneously um, to people. And maybe along the way that helps on, uh, you know, the, the unbanked, right? Because if the state can figure out a way to get money to people, whether they have a bank account, use a bank account or not, you're automatically bringing more people into the system. And I think the federal government has the ability to do that too. Because there are all kinds of payments, obviously, that come from states and they're not just about unemployment right? Um, there are all kinds of benefits that go to people who, who are in need. And so we've got to be creative and we've got to be willing to change and we need help to do it. We're not going to be able to do it on our own. And our doors are open to people with ideas and innovators and um, we will collaborate with you. And we hope you will collaborate also with the federal government because it was a little bit ironic. People were in need, government recognized it. They actually wanted to get money to people. But between here and there was a very long road and complicated. Let's talk about the New York bid license. This is an area where you've enacted significant change since you arrived. Uh, the idea is to increase take up, if I understand it correctly, but also to ease entry and where there are no consumer protection concerns to make it easier for coins to list, but also for exchanges to do various different things. Let's link the impact of the pandemic to these crypto measures. Do you think crypto has potential to address some of the, issue, some of the issues we've, we've identified uh, and indeed to um, through changes such as the bid license and having some sort of federalization of, of, these, of these kinds of activities, whether it's through state compacts or, or 
federal charter, although I know you're not a fan of that, but do you think that can play a role in improving the state of affairs? So look, I think cryptocurrency is very important as an innovation and as a potential alternative to certain aspects of the financial system. The reason I like it is that it's organic and it's been developed and over time it's become more sophisticated. Um, you know, when you've got the fidelities of the world coming in and looking for some type of a bit license from us, you know things have really changed. Nobody could say it's on the fringe anymore. And obviously blockchain, fundamentally important to business processes. My own view is we wanna generate the conditions for innovation, but I don't have the ideas for innovation, right? Uh, I know what our priorities are, but the people who have the ideas and are the entrepreneurs, we wanna help, you know, seed that innovation, S-E-E-D, so that it develops. Um, and we wanna do it in New York and we wanna work collaboratively and we want to pilot. And when I came in, the bit license was coming up on its five-year anniversary and I was very aware um, of the criticism. And so we took a very hard look and we had some tough conversations and heard a bunch of criticism directly. I personally heard a lot of criticism directly. And we took the ideas and we worked together with industry to figure out what was reasonable to change. And yes, one of the things we wanted to do, we wanted to give more guidance and have more conversation about how to get a license. But I was very conscious of the criticism that you've got to be wealthy and have a whole law firm at your disposal to get the license. And so um, right in the bit license regulation, uh, it talks about I have the authority to grant conditional license. And so we looked deep into that and, um, you know, we put out there that we want to hear from folks who are interested in a conditional license, whether they want to partner with a, an existing licensee um, or whether they want to do sort of a little pilot and we could talk about what the conditions of that would be as they grow. We formed a partnership with our state university system where we're going to see if we can give a conditional license to the state university so that, and they're all across the state, so that they can work with um, innovators, entrepreneurs, and see uh, if they can, you know, be a site where further innovation in crypto occurs, um, and countless ideas. And yes, to your point, since the industry has really grown and matured, we thought, you know, you shouldn't have to come, if you're licensed, you shouldn't have to come to us every single time you want to do a new coin. There are some things that we know, and if a uh, if a new coin has been approved by us three times or three or three of our licensees have figured out how to do it under a framework that you know, we've approved with self-certification, let the people innovate. Um, and uh, it's better for them, it's better for us. We should be spending our resources on new entrants. So I think that crypto, blockchain, virtual currency, all these things are, important as a way to show what smart people, innovators can do. And by the way, and I know I've said this before, those who have our license, they want the license. They want the seal of approval and, and they use it in their marketing materials because their point is they're talking to their counterparties, their potential investors, their customers, and they want to say, I have the DFS license, therefore you can trust me. I've been vetted. And I think that's very important. You know, last year I went to Europe and talked to some of our counterpoints um, and they said the same thing with respect to FinTech. They said, FinTech actually wants oversight and regulation because otherwise they don't know where the lines are 
And if they're good intentioned, they want to level playing field with other people. And so sometimes a fintech uh, leader would come to them and say, here's what we want to do, but we don't know where the lines are. Could you do something about this and put out some kind of guidance so we know what we're supposed to be doing? And that's the kind of beautiful partnership that fosters innovation, but protects everybody else who is affected by these financial products and services. We only have time for one question, and, and I ask you for the, for the sake of time to, to be conscious of you know, the minute and a half or so that we have, okay. but it's about small loans. Um, the questioner is asking what the best way is to bring small to encourage various financial institutions to bring small loans to people on competitive terms. Do you have any views on that? So look, we saw this through um, the PPP program that the lending for a small business was going to a lot of the big institutions and you know, who can blame them? You know, it's practically free money you know, if you can get it. I think that the design in the program has to account for the fact that you need to put these um, rules or conditions in place so that it goes to the right people. Um, our state chartered banks in New York uh, did a tremendous job. They lent huge amounts of money, generally small amounts. Um, and there's also, there are other programs, of course. There are these uh, CDFIs, which can be funded that lend, you know, more on a community level. If you're speaking more writ large, I think that micro lending does not need to be only a matter of the developing world or, or other countries. Um, micro insurance, I think also. So it's an area of tremendous interest for us. You know, we're in the middle of looking at you know, policy ideas for the governor for his state of the state. And obviously the public health um, helping uh, communities with respect to financial inclusion. Um, and of course, uh, jobs, small business, right? We need small business to grow because they hire people. So, you know, we are open to ideas, but it's definitely a priority for us. And um, you know, it's got to be accompanied. Oh, what am I trying to say? If you have predatory lenders and you want to knock them out, you have a vacuum. What are you going to fill it with? How are people going to get money if we don't want them to use products and services that are exploited? We have to fill that void. That's how I see your question. We have to fill that void. We have to come up with ways. Uh, for affordable lending to small businesses, which you know could be a family, could be a couple, um, and uh, to individual entrepreneurs. It's going to take a lot of work, and I don't have all the answers. That's why these dialogues are important. I hope that some of you who are listening will reach out with ideas, and I thank you so much for the invitation. Absolutely. Well, that's been the theme of, of our conference, how to increase competition in banking. And uh, I, th I think that's a key issue for financial inclusion, but also bringing down costs across the board. Superintendent, thank you so much for your time. It's been excellent. Uh, what a great way to finish this conference. And I'm now going to hand it back to Jennifer Schultz, my colleague, uh, to close these, uh, these, uh, this afternoon's proceedings. Thank you. Okay, thank you all for joining us today. And a special thank you to all of our speakers. Um, Brian Brooks, the Acting Comptroller of the Currency, Linda Lacewell, the New York State Department of Financial Services Superintendent, and our expert panel of Maria Early, Eric Goldberg, and Ron Shevlin. I know I've benefited greatly today by hearing all the different perspectives that were offered, um, and it's very exciting conversations to be having. 
Um, if you missed any part of our show today, any of the presentations, they will all be available as recordings on Cato's website. So go ahead and tune in um, to see anything that you missed. Um, discussing payments, lending, and other consumer financial markets is just a part of what we do at Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Um, the center is dedicated to identifying, studying, and promoting financial and monetary alternatives to a con conducive to a stable, flourishing, and free society. I'd encourage you to follow our scholarship at Cato.org, um, at our blog, um, or follow us on Twitter at Cato CMFA. Um, we would love to continue these types of discussions with all of our audience today. And we are so grateful to have shared all of the presentations with you and um, share the perspectives. So thank you and have a great afternoon.